Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. Welcome to um, Curious Creatures, and um, we've decided we're going to go through albums. Sometimes, I, I, lol, you, you, you've probably had loads of people when you were doing your book tour going like, what, what, can we have a track-by-track track report on how you recorded Faith? Yes. You know, yes. things like that. Yes, that happens. Um, um, that happens. Yeah, because yeah. I know you, st- you st- kind of stayed clear of that when you were putting the book together yeah to a great deal because for me uh, i just really want to talk about the emotions and the process of making the music rather than you know delineating everything to you know microscopically um find details of how we made the actual tracks because a lot of that is stuff it it's like you know i don't know if you, if you look at one some of the olympic skaters we're watching lately you know, you wonder how they do some of those things, and they could probably sit down and describe it to you, but it would be kind of tedious for them. They're just, you know, happy about doing the thing, you know, and that's how I feel yeah, about yeah. about the music. I can tell you the process, but um, but perhaps it, yeah. it it might be like the like this the skater the, the you know there's like a lot of falls, there's lots of oh yeah you know little accidents, and then there's also discoveries about new different ways of doing it. Yeah, because we're talking tonight about. Three Imaginary Boys, right. the, the Cure debut album. First album, yeah. 1979. Wow. If anybody can remember that, because <laughs> we can. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it was a long, long time Like it ago. was yesterday. <laughs> yeah, but it's just like a, you know, a blink of an eye, and here we are, and there we were. We can just time right. travel back. Wow. I'm sure it was probably, maybe you didn't, but maybe you did, a set foot in Morgan Studios, or battery studios. Yeah, it was still Morgan, I think, when we it when was, we went. I mean, it changed its name several times, right? But uh, it was it was Morgan. The main reason for that was uh, Chris Parry, our manager, come label head, had okay, offices. Okay, we'll come there. to Chris Parry yeah. later, right? Okay, right. he yeah. had offices in Morgan Studios, so he could literally ah, he could literally okay. just walk down from you know his office and and come and you know see what we were up to, you know. Yeah. Did he have all his socks in his office? Is that where he kept them all? The ones he never wore? The ones he never wore. Yeah, no, he didn't have any socks. He never wore any socks. He always just wore never, loafers. Never, just, just the loafers oh. uh, and the little drain pipe ankle things. Yeah. You know, There's always a bit of ankle showing. Yeah, a little bit of ankle. I think it was like a boat thing because he loved boats, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I always dad him down as a bit of a yachtsman. Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah. I lived in a, a little house in Liverpool with a band called Yachts. And uh, what were they like? Uh, they always had a little bit of, little bit of ankle showing. Little ankle, you know. bit of shoes. Did they wear sailor tops <laughs> as well? <laughs> we, we digress. Um, Chris Parry. Yes. So he he uh, he signed the band. Yeah. When 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 um, everybody else was passing. Everybody else was passing, including you know, um, I think probably the majority of the major record labels, the majority of the more independent record labels, everybody, nobody really wanted us until he signed us. And then they suddenly started, you know, it's like they're like lemmings, you know, they run to uh, 
like you know, pick up where they where they think you know is the next big thing. Not that he was pretty active, wasn't he? I mean, it sounds, yeah. sounds like Chris old old Bill Chris. Yeah. We're we going to call him Chris or Bill. Well, I'll call him Chris for you know lack of clarity on calling him okay. Bill because it's a long story about why he was nicknamed Bill. <laughs> I have no idea. I just, no, I, I, it's a long story. Anyway, but um, he said like he also signed the the jam. Yeah. Did he have a hand in signing the Banshees? Uh, probably. I think he took um, like uh, Jim Cook and various people down to see them when they first started, you know, and stuff like the yeah. Pistols as well and stuff. And uh, I think he had a hand in signing pretty much most of Polydor's, uh, for want of a better phrase, punk, you know, well, signings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, uh, the jam come into the beginning of the story of uh, Three Imaginary Boys because um, when we arrived at Morgan Studios, and I think we had, you know, the luxury of like, you know, four or five days in the studio and... Uh, I, I I don't think that album we actually slept on the floor of the studio. I think that album we we made it back to Chris's uh, house, uh, which is out in Watford at the time. Yeah, and um, so we all stayed in the spare <clears throat> bedroom, as I recall. But um, when we started the process of setting up, because you know you you know this, you come into the studio, you set up your gear, and you spend you know little time getting the sound right, and because Chris was a drummer in his former life. You know, he played in a, a band in New Zealand called Formula, and they had a very big hit with a song called Nature back in the late, early 70s, no, mid-70s, I think. And um, uh -huh. so he arrived in London as, you know, as a, 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 a drumless drummer, right? So every chance he got to sit there with me and go over the drums, he would do them. I only had, like, my first kit I ever bought myself was uh, a Norgahide Maxwin kit. So it was, it was you know, pretty terrible, let's be honest. And so as soon as I saved up some money, I bought uh, a Premier kit. From, okay. From the, I know Premier. Right. Norgahide Maxwin. Maxwin. I mean, Maxwin I was the make. I think it's a sort of, like, Pearls. Oh, like Mac Maxwin Pearl, wasn't it? Yes, it was like Pearl's Bargain Basement, and Norgahide oh. was the colour, which was like a sort of very nondescript <laughs> colour. But it's but you don't still have it, do you? Oh, God, no. No, I, I traded that in for the Premier. First, I got the um, um, uh, an orange Premier, and then, and then I got one with concert toms that was uh, dark blue. It wasn't quite black. It was dark blue. And I brought that to the studio and Chris bashed around on it a little bit and said, you know, it's not really up to it, lol, for recording. But guess what? Um, Rick Butler from The Jam, who was in here, left his kit yeah. and he said, you can use it. So you remember, like, Rick Butler had that kit. Like, was a, it Pearl? A, well, it was a Yamaha. It was a Yamaha. It was a Yamaha. Okay. Brand new Yamaha. And so yeah, it was white, wasn't it? Black. Maybe he had a white black. one as well, but um, the one I had was well, like, black. It's either got to be black or white. Can't be a no. It's not even close, is no, it? No, I know it had a huge. Maybe okay. I think it was white with big white concert toms. Or am I thinking of XTC? Yes, I think I probably am. XTC. No, it, it, yeah. the one he had. His first kit had this tom with a sign on it that said corrosive or something. You know. Okay. And then he got rid of that. 
and he had some deal with Yamaha. And so we got the big black Yamaha kit, which incidentally, I think Boris used the Yamaha later on. Anyway, um, I digress. So we had Rick Butler's kit in the studio, and that's what I used for the whole of uh, Three Imaginary Boys. And they, Rick and Bruce came down to visit one night and at the studio, but... Um, Okay. We didn't see with notepads. They had the, the, their pads. <laughs> well, ready to uh, steal ideas. Well, Robert Go on. always thought that was the case, you know, because like we used to rehearse in the studio next to them, and uh, <laughs> we'd be playing some songs, and then we'd walk past for our lunch break, and we'd hear, you know, yeah. some kind of riffs that sounded. But you know, I'm not saying it. I'm not saying. It. I'm just saying what I remember yep. being talked about. Yeah, I'm. I know. I know because I know later on the Banshees. Uh, of course, we were stable mates right. as we were close with the Cure. We were stable mates with the Jam on Polydor, right? And we share the same art department. Uh, and so you know, there was quite a little bit of interplay yes. with. Oh, it's a album. <laughs> I think they. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to say any more about that. Yeah. What I will say is uh, we talk about Chris Parry. Right. And I, I, I'm going to read a few things, uh, totally random. Well, you, just you've done, first done thing, your research. You know, you've done your research. I just, no, I just, I, because I wanted to, and I was, and I thought I'll get Lol's book out and I'll read Cured. Right. Looking for, you know, the blow-by-blow the, the blow account of the studio. Right. And of course it doesn't exist. It's not there. Right. But what I thought was, I'll look at a review, and this one's from 2005, January, yeah. by a gentleman by the name of Ernest Simpson. See, I've, hi, Ernest, if you're out there. So I'm, I'm just paraphrasing. I've just taken a few. And um, so first thing he says is, you see, he says, the man who discovered and recorded Robert Smith and the lads, Chris Parry, also founder of Fiction Records, honed the band's sound into an edgy, jangly and sharp package. It could have been a byproduct of the fact that The Cure recorded late at night. And he goes on to say in the studio that the jam were in because apparently Chris had something to do. Oh, there you go. Okay. You've just, so I didn't you've just, just, you've just linked it. the yeah. whole thing. Right. No, you've linked the whole thing together because old Rick's kit was in the studio at the same time. My question is, you know, not to be too uh, train spottery, but how much was Chris involved in the actual recording at the time, and how much was Mike Hedges? Well, or did Mike come later? Yeah, no, Mike was there from the beginning uh, with us in in Morgan. I think because Chris had his office at Morgan, and uh, he he would see Mike because I don't know if you remember, but. There used to be like a little cafe come bar place down in the bottom of, of Morgan. And so I'm sure that Chris would hang out down there and chat to whoever was coming through, you know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, Sade walking in. Yeah, yeah, Gary Moore, Thin Lizzy. Nick, Nick Lowe. Yeah, um, Iron Maiden, they were there. Oh, at yeah. At the same time. Yeah. So, oh, Maiden. Maiden, Maiden yes. mate. So he was chatting <laughs> to people, and uh, I'm sure he got chatting to Mike. And Mike was... Only a couple of years older than us at the time, but he seemed, you know, he was like the old guy. To us. He got to be older than us, a lot older than us, didn't he? Because he was, he was almost. I think he was probably younger than us when he started work with us. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah. And then he just kind of yeah. kept losing years. Yeah, we took years off his life. Years on his hair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Yeah. Lovely fellow. Anyway, I uh, I remember, you know, we met Mike and. He was he was a really good uh, 
point because he was the sort of engineer that had been trained i would imagine classically in a way you know he knew yeah. basically he knew where to put the microphone <clears throat> on an acoustic guitar or a drum kit you know he, yeah. he he knew all of that stuff and he knew how to splice tape you know which is something nobody has to do anymore now and um he knew all the tricks he knew, all the tricks. He, knew and he he he'd learned his craft he'd learned his craft but he was i think if if i'm correct it was probably at the point because it, that th this is the mike edges that i met yeah. uh you know with uh the creatures right. um but he was at the point where he was about to become what's the word um where you disregard everything you know. Yeah. And you're willing to just like let it happen and accept the things that maybe shouldn't happen. Yeah, he was he was up for experimenting and also at that time, because it was just on the you know, the turning point of the seventies and the eighties, there was a lot of new stuff coming up in terms of uh you know, electronic stuff, electronic drums, synthesizers that you could control with MIDI and things. And these were all new terms to us all at that time. And and Mike was interested in finding out about them, which he did. Do you think Do you think that, that led to the edgy, jangly, sharp package that Ernest describes? Possibly. Possibly. You know, I mean, I think the confluence of, of us, I don't think we'd actually had... We'd never met anybody before that kind of understood the ideas that we were going towards and also had the knowledge to create a, a sterling recording. It was either one or the other. We either had somebody who was very um, enthusiastic but didn't actually know one end of the desk from the other, or we had somebody that was so stuck in their ways that they couldn't uh recalled any other way you know so it was good to have a combination with him and so chris's part in that whole thing was to sit at the desk with mike and advise i suppose i mean you know i don't know that you know i don't think i'm saying any great uh surprise that that chris was more of a you know an ideas kind of guy i don't think he was not hands on the desk he wasn't manning you know the the, no. the controls and the tape machines and stuff. Um, but he would sit there in an advisory capacity. And because we were young, you know, 20 perhaps, uh, we would sit at the back of the studio uh, after we'd done our bits, you know, because basically the first album of The Cure is the set that we played for, for almost, you know, two or three years, I suppose, by that time. Mm. You know, I think th there's always a tendency when, when you first start recording to keep adding stuff you know because you you want to think well this will improve it you know and uh, i think one thing that hedges was instrumental in was you know, not pointing out but able to help us understand that sometimes less is more you know and uh, for instance i remember hearing the first time uh 10 15 saturday night the first when we'd you know, Mike had mixed it and it was all ready to go. And to me, it was like everything was so loud in it and I was so loud in it. I was, as, you know, the drums were all there completely naked and it was at once exhilarating and terrifying, you know, because yeah. I was like, wow, everybody's going to, you know, you can't hide behind anything. So, and that's true anyway in a three piece yeah i mean you know that it's it's like if there's only three of you doing stuff you've all got to be 
good yeah. or competent at it or at least you know yeah because you can you can be singled out everybody can actually be heard yeah 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 and and also if you make a mistake everything falls apart very quickly whereas if there's you know it's a five six piece band you know somebody can make a mistake you know and it's not that noticeable but um you know a three piece you've got to be rock solid um Ernest again yes <laughs> the first three songs first three songs on the album 10 15 Saturday night which you just mentioned yeah accuracy one of my favorites Thank and you. grinding halt was some of the best songs that Ernest had ever heard and probably wow. that, that a lot of people had ever heard at that time he he lightens this album to along with other budding bands at the time the Smiths echo and the Bunnymen New Order Depeche Mode and how they opened up new worlds for him and probably for a lot of people you know they're saying it was okay to veer away from top 40 radio hits you know to what everybody else was listening to so I mean 10 15 Saturday night accuracy grinding halt were they this was like the way the set was put together or were they put together that way for the album or was it the same as um, the you know I don't actually recall offhand how um we would start a set or whatever and that i'm sure i can find out if i look back at it it's, it's been a few years uh, <laughs> listeners just but, a few um, years yes bit yeah. of water under the bridge a lot of water under the bridge but um the thing that i do um think about with, mm. with that is that they they had a, a purity of of a, a vision uh, our vision was not that necessarily um complete at that point i mean you know it wasn't really probably until the next album that we managed to get more uh you know control over how we wanted to present ourselves but um they were definitely like little little vignettes of mm. of how 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 the cure had started and where we were at at that point so like 10 15 accuracy and, you know, I had to play the 16s on the hi-hat without knowing the two-handed technique, this for all you drummers out there, which was, you know, absolutely impossible. Go on, I, as, a, you know, as another drummer, I'm going to say straight yeah. away, that's what makes it so unique. Well, it, it, had, a, it had a kind of urgency that was... <laughs> like, <laughs> hurry, hurry up and finish. Was, hurry up and get to the end. Um, <laughs> and, and then Grinding Hall, you know, was was another one that had, had its own... Uh, you know, sort of excitement building inside it. So I think with those three songs, and mind you, that was how the compilation version of the album, you know, started. That's right. Yeah, because yeah. we didn't have we didn't have a deal in America. We just had the, this one thing in England, and so we wanted to get the album out to other people. And the only way we could do it was put some like the early singles together with. Uh, you know the best tracks on uh, three imaginary boys and call it something different call it boys don't cry so boys don't cry as a compilation album which actually came out 1985th of february so fairly you know like 42 years ago 42 yeah. years blimey 42 years ago just like it was yesterday just like it was yesterday um that was uh, our calling card to get into right uh, a, a wider acceptance around the the globe you know starting with america when we were on a tiny little label in america called pvc with that album and yeah. um i think really that helped us o open up a bit 
you know, for, for stuff. But um, they actually make it in the first album. Like I say, I don't remember exactly how many days it was, but uh, yeah. we just went in and played our, played our set. And then, you know, there were there was a chance to do... We, we had a, you know, a rough idea about overdubbing and stuff, you know, so we'd put like an extra guitar on or, you know. I don't remember that I played overdub drums of anything you know no. i think i just smashed Symbol? my way through the song don't even Tam think i did that tambourine i don't think the tambourine came until we got to places like um abbey road where we thought oh well we should do the tambourine here you know and uh go down in that little room do you remember in, in abbey road there's that little room that looks like a, a swimming pool you know and uh, oh gosh uh yes vague memory yeah sort of reverb and and they would put a mic in there and a speaker and that was like how they made those kind of slapback echo things for the beatles and so we thought well good enough for the beatles we'll we'll do it and yeah but yeah. um okay i'm gonna crack on i'm gonna continue with uh th yes. this review it says so if you're a casual cure fan i don't think one exists right <laughs> casual cure fan i know what he means and only have some of the more popular albums as if they're you know, that's right. a, a little bit know that this is an entirely different cure one that had a lot of talent and great post-punk songwriting before it found its footing for its own unique sound that's it perhaps you yeah, just, that's fair enough yeah that's fair enough i mean you know like most bands and you know, there might be some disagreement amongst uh, people about this, but most bands, when you start off, you know, you're told a lot of different things from a lot of different sources, and you kind of want to get to make your own mark. So, especially back then when there was no internet kids mm. and no social media and nothing like that at all, the only way you could do it is is by going around and playing to people and you want to keep your audience and you want them to come back. So we spent a lot of time those first years kind of experimenting with what we thought was the best version of ourselves and kind of working out, oh, well, people like that song. They seem <clears> to <throat> you know, dig that one. Maybe we should do some more like that. And, and you know, we were like constantly monitoring our effect, I think, on, on people and our effect on ourselves as well. So... He's right in that, you know, the first album is not quite us, but it's also not not us. You know, I can't dismiss it. I listen to it and I realize there's a lot of things that were were good experiments. You know, there's one or two ones that are not so good experiments, but, you know, you don't have to do them again. It's it's like everything, you know, you the, the only trouble is everything in art. The only trouble with, with you know, music, popular music is uh after a while you you people expect you to recreate the same thing that you did before they don't ever expect mm. you to change you know and then if you do change you people either love it or they hate it there's very few people stuck in the middle like well it's okay i don't mind if they change this time and it's people become very attached to certain sounds and certain ways of, of being and i don't know that being uh you know a uh, a popular music artist has a very long shelf life for that reason because you know you you can't really 
do the same thing again and again and again for 40 years. You know, you have to you have to move on at some point. You have to change something. That know? was a good cure line, though. Right? The, the again and again and again and again. We <laughs> well, I like to get those little Easter eggs in now and again. Just make sure people are listening, paying attention. Yeah. Over in Banshee camp, you know, we were going like, yeah. has Robert got a new song yet? Again and again and again and again. <laughs> um where does that leave us? Let's see. I, I, I was what just about Ernest's review? The Ernest review. It said, uh, if you've never been into The Cure, this album will possibly surprise you. And what a great chance to get in at the ground floor. Go ahead and see what all the fuss is about. <laughs> Find out that the band isn't really goth, that they're a great post-punk or alternative band that just dressed like they were goth. Well, that came later, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, like, I, I know that, uh, you know, Robert would always say, oh, we were never goth, and, you know, the goths wouldn't consider us goth, and that. And he has a point. But what I would maintain is we were the we were the fertile ground that, that grew, you know, the gothier of the goths. You know, that's where really where that, that happened. And, you know, I, I don't, I can't, I can't differentiate how things went from the first album to the second, third, and fourth album and think that we didn't have a, a part in that because, of course, we did. Yeah. But, but you know, music doesn't exist. It's like art doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not, you know, without influence. So there's influences going on that whole time. I mean, the first first five years, you know, from 79 to 84 were, were full of input you know and of course it's going to come out with what we do so but it's um it's interesting a lot of people you know especially as the band has gone on and on and on and on uh, a lot of people don't know half those things i mean it's it's funny it's it's kind of like i i remember you know when i was younger finding an album by a band maybe their fourth or fifth album and i'd suddenly discovered them and and decided to listen to it and then to go back over the back catalog and find out wow, you know, where mm. they came from and how they came from. I'm sure that happens to people that get into the cure that only ever heard, you know, Friday I'm in love or something, you know, and then they go, oh, and they did all this, you know, this yeah. other stuff. They don't really, really know. So um, I could I, I could quite easily, you know, just to put two things side by side. I think um, when I, jo I joined Susie and the Banshees and my first recording album with them was Kaleidoscope. Right, seventy nine, I think. Same, maybe it yeah. came right, it came out about nineteen eighty. Yeah, and, and and kind of similar things maybe have happened. You you had uh, Pearl was around doing yeah. three imaginary boys, but wasn't yeah. went off to do other things and then came back into the band. Yeah, um, I think Kaleidoscope was where you know Susie and Severin were, had lost two members of the band. So when I came in, I was bringing a whole bunch of new ideas. All Indeed my, you, were. you know, all yeah. my uh, backpack full of rubbish and <laughs> um, influences. Uh, and then, of course, John McGeeock coming in as well. But yeah. the, I remember we, we, we kept dipping into each other's world. Certainly, I remember coming to the studios where you were and... Right. So it wasn't like we were kind of certainly not taking notes, but certainly aware of how far, how much we, I suppose, we were pushing away 
you know, and yeah. trying to reinvent the things we, we did know to make them sound like, to put them through our filter, you know. To yeah, I, I think definitely the, when you're first given the ability to make records at, mm. at will almost, you know, like, oh, you, what, we can do another? Because like when we made the first album, we were like, yeah, okay, that's nice. We've done that. Uh, we probably will be going back to work next week, you know. And that didn't happen, you know, and that hasn't happened for 40 years. But it's like, uh, once you suddenly start to realize, hey, we can probably keep doing this, right? Then, you know, that opens up a whole whole different vista in front of you because you think, okay, all these people that we listened to growing up who changed our minds, we're now in the position to do that with, with our generation. And mm. so it gives you, I mean, you know, it would be pompous to say it gave you a great responsibility, but it kind of gives you uh, the awareness that you are going to be responsible for the way people think about music of that time. Somewhere down the line, I was, you know, probably dimly aware, but I was aware that like, oh, okay, we're doing this and people will know about it at some point and they'll know about it in the future and it'll, you know, change, we can change things. I think certainly at those first few years uh, there was the urgency of of change you know how we're going to to make a difference in things which obviously you know as you go on and you get older and and you see different things in the world and you see the the way the music business is that goes away a little bit because mm. you become you know not jaundiced, I don't think that's the right word, but you become aware of the fact that, yes, you can, you know, your youthful enthusiasm gives way to, uh, you know, a, a little more. You're, you're kind of full of fear and fearless. Yes. You yes. know, that first step into the recording studio, the first yes. time you're under the microscope, the first yeah. time you come back and hear yourself, you go, whoa, I've never heard myself so loud. And, yeah. oh, my God, I'm so loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was definitely, I mean, that's exactly, you got it exactly right. That's exactly what I felt the first time I heard. I can remember sitting in Chris Parry's office and he said, have a listen to this, boys, and this is, you know, 10, 15. Oh, my. Cranked it up on his quad system. Oh, and my. I'm like, uh, and I'm waiting for the bit, you know, <clears throat> the, the fills, like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, and I'm thinking... I hope they're not as loud as the rest of it all. And they're like, Burr. and then I started thinking to myself, where's the rest of the song? Where, you know, that was like subconsciously going on my mind. Where, isn't there something else supposed to be going on there? Yeah, no, there's the bass, Michael's bass, and there's Robert's guitar and the voice. It's all there. But, you know, it was like miles apart and, and but yeah. all together at the same time. You see, was, you just, that, that, that whole thing, you know, the bum, 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 bum. Yeah. It's like, it's like musically, like a challenge, bold as brash. You just, that's it. There's nothing supporting it. It's just like cutting across the beat, change it, bang. Right. And it's it's, it's, it's it's so brave. Uh, as a, The whole thing is, and yet we wouldn't have thought about it as we were thinking of like, no. we really were just like jumping off the cliff. Yeah. Like free, <laughs> jump, you know, free fall going like, yes. it's okay. We're going to land absolutely fine. We know exactly what we're doing. Yeah. Of, course, of course we didn't, but we just did. Yeah. yeah. And I What's think it? that's it. That's the, uh, 
the what what do they call that? That's the uh, imperiousness of youth. You know. Oh yes. We just we're there. Uh, know, we, so. uh, do we have it back? Do you think? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> life it, life is definitely cyclical. So perhaps a little bit, you know, but just slightly more achy bones, you know. Is it um, f- fond memories? Yeah, a lot of that time is. It, re- it really is. I mean, it, it's also filled with a, a, a lot of unnecessary things, you know, because uh, I realise that, you know, like you say, said before, fearlessness and fear. There's some fears that I had back then that were yeah. totally ridiculous to have, and I should have just, you know, but you you can't know until you go through them. So you know that's that's not a part of being young, you know. And those things that you filled you with dread, or you know, oh, I yeah. I can't do this, or they again. I think that's they're the things that made it unique. They're the things yeah. that you had to fight and overcome. Well, I think we were very, very. Um, no, I wouldn't say perfectionist, but we were. Very very focused on what we were doing i remember you know like finishing a take and and the you know back then they still had the light and and the Mm. disembodied voice would come on and be going hey come and have a listen you know and i remember always trying to judge from those you know few words yeah how we had done how we had recorded it what it had sounded like even before we got into sitting in the control room you know which is maybe like you know five seconds away and and so that's an unbelievable pressure you put yourself under that we didn't need to because it's tape. You can do it again if it doesn't sound right. You can do it again, and you can do it again. But it wasn't the the, the attitude we have was we get it first time. Yeah, You know, you've rehearsed, you've worked, you know, uh, you've put time in because a lot of the stuff you've played live a lot because this is the first time you've been in the studio. We we knew the songs Um, backwards, Yeah. And then there's the red light fear, you know, here we go. <laughs> somebody, somebody counts it in. Yeah. Oh shit, you get yeah. it wrong. You yeah. start again, you pick it up yeah. and then you get through the whole thing. And then usually the whole thing, certainly the drums and bass and probably the guitar would be done yeah. in that first take. Yeah. Yeah. And then quite quickly, you, you, you're back in the control room. You've never really spent much time in there. But already you've got a kind of an idea of what you should be thinking and how it should be sounding. And right. you, we're all watching the guy at the desk, maybe your case, Chris Parry or Mike Hedges, yeah. and uh, as if they they know more in a way. But quite quickly, you just you you feel we're all in the same thing together. It's a kind of it's, yeah. it's amazing how quickly you you pick up the uh, the challenge, you know, the gauntlets laid down. Definitely, by the time we had done three imaginary boys we felt competent enough to be able to ask Chris, like, hey, we're going to do another record, right? If we do this other record, can we kind of work it ourselves? You know, I mean, I actually, I remember Robert saying to, to Chris, Chris said, well, you know, I can come down and see the songs from time to time. And he said, yeah, if you want to leave with your ears bleeding or something like that, you know, it was <laughs> like, okay. So, I mean, you know, to his, to his credit, Chris saw, the writing on the wall and and said you know yeah i think they could probably do something different so i'll leave them to it so he did he didn't you know for 17 seconds he didn't really uh interfere too much you know he would pop down you know maybe once a day you know after 
whatever you know the music business working day is i think it was usually when the pub across the street was about to open so you know he'd, he'd come down there via the part ball you, you see know, you see we were probably saved by the british licensing hours for um yeah. premises that <laughs> sold alcohol yeah. you know because there was a time when you it stopped at three o'clock and didn't open oh, yeah. again until half past five yeah. or whatever it might yeah. have been so there was yeah. there was two and a half hours you might as well get down the studio and get some work done get some recording done yeah yeah and then it, you know then it, it they didn't close again until like half past 10 right at night yeah so back to the studio <laughs> no, it's sort of about the time just before so we got simon in the band for the second album we were going to the pub in hawley and we would go to the king's head and we would get the last orders and then we would run across town through the subway which was in the subway song so that was the actual subway and we would run through that i think it has a blue plaque now next to it which oh yes please my mum very much <clears throat> but anyway we'd go through there through that subway to the one indian restaurant that was in the town because you know it had a license until 12. so yeah. we go in have a curry which is always good and lots of lager to go with the Aye. curry which is made it even better Okay, well, I'm going to leave the. I'm going to say. I'm going to say thanks uh, to Ernest Simpson. Yes, for thank let, you, Mr. For let, Ernest, for letting me borrow. You know your stuff from 2005. I hope you're yeah. still around and, yeah. um, and do get in touch. Uh, Lol, it's been great going visiting the uh, the first album. It's been it's been a it's been a thing, hasn't it? It's been good. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Yeah. Ernest says one listen to the band's debut from nineteen seventy nine and you'll wonder why they were ever called goth. <laughs> oh, I tell you what I was going to do. Firing Cairo. I just love the way, you know, you got those eleven letters going F I R E I N C A I R O. So I thought I'd look for other examples of songs with 11 letters in the title you know that might and one of them of course was m-i-double-s-i-double-s-i-double-p-i bobby gentry <laughs> which you could sing to the same melody so you can go um m-i-s-s-i-s-s-i-p-p-i -I -S -S -I -P -P -I. you see okay. i can do it okay. and then of course you could then just find another word a good way of learning words you know automobiles yeah. fits as yes. well you know a U T O yeah right A U T O M O B I L E yes right <laughs> I um, can never unhear that now every time I hear no, Mary Cairo I'll oh, get this one okay baby diapers oh dear me B A B Y D I A P E R S uh, okay yeah, here's, here's a little nugget for those train spotters uh, that go on like we, we love these nuggets right okay We're, firing Cairo the title yeah. I thought of because. I wanted to have a phrase that meant the same thing as Coles to Newcastle. Oh, amazing. Right? So, fire in Cairo. Because I knew nothing, of course, about Cairo, except it was in Egypt and it was bloody hot, right? So, okay. So, that was the, that's where that came from. Uh, well, till next time. Till it's next good night time. from me. And it's good night from him. Oh, lovely. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer Dan Didier. Executive producer Mark Cates. Associate producer Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing Margie Taylor. Art and logo design Justin Thomas K. Music production Jack Knife Lee. 
Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.